Hey everybody, welcome to church as the kids are ski-daddling. I'll introduce myself. My name is Chris McDaniel, lead pastor here at Trinity, and it's good to be here with you on this third Sunday of, of Advent. And watching um, these baptisms and, and child blessings just reminds me of um, my own baptism. And I hope that for you, as you sit today and um, either watch kids who are being blessed, who one day in Jesus' name will be baptized, or watching them be baptized, that you'll recall your own. Um, I was baptized in a, in a trout pond in Asheville, North Carolina, and I'll, I'll never forget the feeling of mud between my toes and giant fish hitting my legs. And um, like Ashley said, the, the terror of rite of passage is, is kind of a cool thing. So in the future, we're going to put giant fish in the tank. We've decided when I was doing uh, doctoral work in, in Thailand, we went to this river market and um, they told us we could pay like $1 to put our feet in one of those tubs with a million little fish that would eat all the skin off your feet. And I thought, okay. And um, I put my feet in and then I pulled them out and it was done. It freaked me out. So we're going we're gonna to heighten the, the stakes a little bit in the future just to see what happens. I kid. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. We're going to read something from John the Baptizer that will not sound very Christmassy, and yet I believe that the Lord has um, some good stuff for us to, to think about and to meditate upon today as we navigate our way uh, to Christmas morning. So I'm going to read uh, verse uh, 7 through, um, I think I'm going to go um, to, to 17. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds said to him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we, we ask you to help us today to uh, quiet our hearts and think true and deep thoughts uh, about the Bible, about this sermon from John the Baptizer. I pray that we would hear you, Lord, speak to us here today, God, on this third Sunday in Advent. Lord, Christmas is just around the corner. Help us to prepare to live into this season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've said this a few times during the Advent season, you know, our, our hearts uh, want um, shepherds and angels in pastoral settings, and yet what we get are sentences about broods of, of vipers. And 
So today we're going we're gonna to do a very Adventy thing, actually. We're going we're gonna to sit with the words of John the Baptizer. He is the principal figure of the Advent season, and we're going to try to make some sense in our own spirits and in our own lives of what is being said and maybe carry something with us out of this place that will help us be ready for and get ready for Christmas. I'm going to say four things today. First is this, brood of vipers. I mean, I think the only thing worse than a viper is a brood of vipers, um, which I suggest maybe implies more than one viper. Uh, and the thing that's so crazy about a text like this is all these people are coming out from Jerusalem, from the cities, and they're curious about John the baptizer. John is this wild man that lives in the woods and um, eats bugs and wears scratchy clothes. And he's saying to people, prepare the way of the Lord. He's giving them this Advent sermon, get ready. Something good is coming toward you, get ready for it. And there are all kinds of people in this crowd. There are devout people, there are curious people, there are cynical people. There are all kinds of people, probably bad people and good people out in the woods to hear John and when he says to them, you brood of vipers, what he's doing is he's testing them. He's kind of like bumping them to see if they'll bump off their mark. And this is a really uncomfortable thing for us to sit with because many of us don't really have room in our faith or our theology for being tested by God, for having our motives really pried into. And what John is doing right here is he's saying, sure, you've come out. But why have you come out to hear? And I think that for many of us, we are invited when we hear something so stark in a text like this to um, recognize that there are times in life where God will test our motives, will kind of bump us, not do radical violence or dangerous violence to us, but will bump up against us to measure the extent to which we really want what he wants. And I think that there were all kinds of people in that crowd today, just like there are all kinds of people in every crowd. And there are times where the Lord will come to your door and knock on your heart, on your life, and bump into you a little bit to see what it is that you really want. And I think that begs the question, do you know what you really desire? Why are you here? Why are you exploring and asking and doing the things that you do? John is wanting to test. And I believe that Jesus through our brother John is essentially winnowing in that moment. What brings you to these places where you ask questions about faith? So he calls them a brood of vipers to see how they'll react. And probably some people left and other people thought, that's weird, but I'm going to stick in. The second thing that John says, and this is a very Advent thing, he says, I want you, God wants you to bear fruits worthy of repentance. He wants what you say to, to begin to line up with the fruit that hangs off of the tree of your lives. And what John is doing in this moment is essentially preaching um, to them about alignment. He's saying, I want your word and your, and your life and your works to begin to line up, to measure. I want your life to be in agreement with itself. And I think that begs a question for each and every one of us. Are we integrated? Are we aligned? And the answer actually is no um, for all of us to varying degrees. We have these sort of discrepancies, these places in our lives where we're not in alignment or in agreement. And what John is saying here, I think, is really important. He's saying that the tree of your life is meant to bear a certain kind of fruit. 
And it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. It's, it's not that everybody bears the same type of fruit or even to the same extent. He just says there should be life flowing through you that results in life coming out of you or forth from you. And I just want to say this. The Lord wants you to tend to alignment in your life. He just does. But the way that life tends to go is that we oftentimes drift from alignment. We get busy, we get distracted, we get discouraged, we become anxious, we have all sorts of things and forces and pressures in us and around us that move us out of alignment. And it's our job to stop and ask the question, am I bearing fruit worthy of or in keeping with repentance? And repentance just simply means I've changed my thinking. Am I now living in a way that is consistent with the change of thinking? And I think it's really important for us to hear this. It is the nature of atrophy, the nature of sin in the world, not just the sin you choose when you make a conscious choice to do something bad. It's the nature of our atmospheric fallenness that moves us toward misalignment rather than alignment. Things are not just naturally getting better in your body, in your soul, in your relationships, we tend toward brokenness, fallenness. And one of the invitations for us right now is to step back and look at our lives and say, what's happening inside me and in what direction is my life headed? One of the things that I think I became aware of in my own heart over four months ago, and actually about seven months ago when I began to, to step back and ask real questions around the symptoms and signs of burnout in my own life and the anxiety and the stress that I was living in and had been living in for a long time. It's like you can manage it until you can't, you know, is where is there misalignment? And I don't mean like robbing liquor stores and beating people up in traffic. I mean, if you're doing those things, you should definitely like talk to someone and deal with those things. But I mean the more kind of benign things, the places where we retreat and isolate, where we don't know how to live and we begin to live in a way that's just not totally resonant with who we know we're really meant to be. If we don't stop and pay attention, the drift happens over time and you don't notice it at first. You know, you've heard the sentence about a boiling of a frog. Like if you just a little bit at a time and the next thing you know, you're, you're in hot water. One of the things that a a counselor said to, to my wife and I early in our time away that has been a, a, a really life-changing practice for us is that one way to begin to understand how it is that you're doing and whether that fruit in keeping with repentance, which um, is something so important for us to look at, is for us to practice the examine together, not in isolation, but together. And my wife and I um, have been really transformed through probably five to seven days a week for the last four months or so of having a template for our sharing where we don't just vent problems or tackle issues or deal with logistics, but we have a space where we get together most every morning and we discuss in a contemplative space three questions. For what are we thankful and, you know, there have been days where all I could say was, like, I'm super thankful for my pillow. I mean, truly, there was a, a moment in examine a, a few weeks ago, and I was like, it's the pillow. That's all I can, that's all I, today, that is all I can be thankful for, because nothing else seems awesome. Um, 
but we make it a discipline every day to look at one another, even if we're tackling major stuff and say the things for which we are thankful. You can find something to be thankful for no matter what you're facing. You just have to decide to say it out loud. I found in my own life it changes the temperature of the whole room when you begin to name things for which you're grateful. The second thing after that, we spend time speaking about places of desolation in our hearts. And the way that I think of desolation is not just hard stuff. It's where have I gone against the grain of what God wanted? Where do I feel splintered? Like what a conversation or a reaction or an interaction that just felt like I went against the grain of what God would have wanted me to do. I wish I could do it over again or do it differently. And we name those things. And this is where repentance really comes in because otherwise you just live with a vague sense of guilt or shame and you spend your whole life just trying to do better or be better. But if you name places of desolation, then you have an opportunity to sit with those things. And she and I don't try to fix one another. We don't say, well, you should do this, this, and this next time. We are learning to hold things that hurt together without fixing those things. And then we finish by naming places of consolation, places where we felt we went with the grain, where we felt thankful, where we felt life, where we felt peace, where we felt in alignment with God's best. For me, examine prayerfully but conversationally has been the primary way that I tend to how and whether I'm bearing fruit in keeping with my repentance. It helps you keep short accounts. There are a lot of ways to do it, but I would commend that to you if you don't have a plan. If you don't have someone in your life that feels safe enough to have that conversation with, then you can do it with you in your journal. I think I wrote 109 pages in my journal on a Google Doc during the last four months. Just go there and tell God and tell myself and think it through and pray it through and write it down. And I would commend that to you. I've never journaled until the last four months. You got to think about fruit. The third thing I want to say is this, when he says that, bear fruit, keeping with your repentance, three different groups of people say, well, what then should we do? And when I hear that, I just hear the kind of conundrum that they were all feeling, right? It's like John's saying, you can live a life of alignment and bear fruit. And then you've got crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers all are like, what? What should we do? What, what, what should we do about this? Because what they're sensing is probably the thing that we all sense, which is that seems so good. And yet I don't like what happens sometimes when I look at my life and my reactions and my responses. And so three groups say the same thing. What should we do? What should we do? And to the big group, the crowd, so this is like the nondescript, you know, all the different people. Um, John looks at them and he says, um, reject self-preservation. He just basically, to, to the whole group, he's like, if somebody asks you for something, give them more than they ask for, not less. He, he basically says, I want you to reject tendencies towards self-preservation. And for me, at least, that's instructive because he gets more specific later. But to all of us, he says, where you see self-pres, I want you to reject it. I want you to move against that instinct that there's not enough, that scarcity dominates the day. And I want you to live your life open-handed. I'm learning 
in my own life that in, in Ignatian spirituality, there's a word indifference. And we miss that word because we think indifference means you don't care. But in Ignatian spirituality, indifference just means open-handed. It means that you're curious about what's going to happen next and you're not living your life with a closed fist. You're not just trying to make everything happen like you wish it would happen. What then should we do is an open-handed question. And there's a time, I think, where we're all supposed to ask the Lord, what should I do? Who should I be? Where is this story going? How do I live in response to what you're asking of me? So to the crowd, John says, reject self-preservation. And I think to each and every one of us, he would say to us, I want you to reject self-preservation. I want you to live as indifferent or as curious, as open-handed as you possibly can. If you think you know, you probably don't. If you think you've got somebody else figured out, you probably don't. If we think we know how everything ought to go, we probably don't. And we could stand to open up our hands and cultivate indifference an open-handedness. And then you've got these tax collectors and everybody hated tax collectors. And so even the, the text says, even tax collectors said, what should we do? And note that John doesn't say, quit your job. You have a terrible job. Like you're a skeezy person. You should stop being that kind of person. He just says, be the best version of yourself in that space that's really tricky. Tax collectors took advantage of people. They were hated by Jews. They got rich on the back of their countrymen, giving money to the Romans. Nobody liked a tax collector, but Jesus just looked at them and said, don't be greedy. And then soldiers who are notoriously underpaid, so they beat people up and took money and extorted. He didn't say stop being a soldier. He said, be a soldier that doesn't succumb to your own personal Achilles heel. What Jesus was doing in this moment, I think, was asking people to know who they were and what their weaknesses were so that they could actually be a faithful person within the space that they were called to occupy. That leads me to the last thing I want to say, which is, you need to know what your occupational hazards look like. What are your occupational hazards? And I don't just mean your job. I don't just mean like what you do from, you know, nine to five or eight to six or whatever it is that you do when you go to work. I mean, when you get off, how do you get off? Where do you get off track? When you are squeezed and you begin to go down a road that you know is not the best, that's desolation. Have you stopped to notice that? And too much of the time we go too far, too long without noticing desolation when it's happening all around us. And we come by this honestly because we get to points where we're just not aware of what's going on in us and around us. The Advent season, in, in part, is an opportunity for you to step back and ask the question, how am I really doing? And a part of knowing the answer to that question isn't just discerning how you feel. It's understanding what are your occupational hazards? Where do you get? It might be self-preservation, scarcity, like the crowd. It might be greed, like the tax collector, an insatiable more, more, more. It might be bullying or coercion, like it was for the soldiers. But it doesn't have to stop there. When Karen and I were in counseling um, in, in Virginia, we, we spent a week in Virginia during my time away, our time away, and um, we were with a, a man who has become just an, an instrumental voice in, in our lives. He's 
a wonderful guy named Steve Smith and his wife Gwen. They live in Virginia. And there was one day where we were sitting outside in, in the woods in rural Virginia, which by the way, Virginia is so pretty. Um, we were in such a pastoral setting and there was one moment where he looked across the, the porch to me and he just said, well, you're just a Jesus junior, aren't you, Chris? And he was like both like old and a lot bigger than me. So there's nothing I could do to resist him in that moment. Um, and I stopped and I, I thought that that is one of my main occupational hazards feeling responsible for more than I'm responsible for. And I come by that, honestly, just like you come by your weaknesses and occupational hazards. I learned it when I was young, rewarded even at times. And that's the thing, right, with your, your challenges, your shadows, is you're rewarded um, and affirmed until you're, until you're not, until it doesn't work. And so for me, recognizing that your shadow can be any number of things. And there was this terrifying moment for me recognizing this kind of Jesus Jr. complex. When I was in college, um, Marty, who our worship pastor and a group of friends of mine and I, um, they referred to me in college as the mediator man, like the person who was always trying to kind of like negotiate everything and bring everybody together. And there was a moment during this time away where I began to recognize that a lot of my own motivation toward ministry was born out of like a shadowy place, not just like a pure, like the things you do, your motives are never as pure as you think they are. <laughs> There's a darkness to it. And for me, at least, growing up the way I grew up and being um, navigating spaces the way I did, I began to contend with this terrifying thought of like, maybe what got me into this was as much brokenness as it was God. And then you start thinking about that and go, huh, how far down does that rabbit hole go? And maybe you're asking the question, maybe what got me into this friendship or this job or this marriage has as much brokenness attached to it as something really good and beautiful. So do you know what happens when you begin to ask that question? You're supposed to say, well, what then should we do? You're not supposed to try to figure it all out and fix it all because then you'll just do the wrong thing. You'll run real fast in the wrong direction. And I spent a lot of time running real fast in the wrong direction and having no idea. And you probably have too. See, that's like what it means to be human. That's what it means to be finite and fragile and try to figure things out on our own when really all along Jesus is saying, would you just ask me what you should do? So what I want to say to you is this, you're a mixed bag. Stop spending your life waiting for someone to tell you that you're just right or that you're all bad because it would just be too easy if either of those things were true. We come to God with all sorts of mixture in us. And we stay with God with all sorts of mixture in us. And you need to make friends with the fact that you're a mess. Because it's only when we get there that we begin to really see that Jesus can love us even when we're not so great. What then should we do? 
I believe part of what we should do as we light the third candle in the middle of the Advent season is to step back and begin to do some reflection about what and how we're really doing and what's really going on in our hearts. Knowing that Jesus will be there at the end of that exploration. Even if you don't know how things are going to turn out. Because we really don't ever totally know. If you're able to stand together.